Hey folks, and welcome to the Daily Ratings Podcast. It's a show where each week, we'll sit down with Vincent Daly to get his thoughts on the latest movies he's been watching, both older films and new releases. And don't worry, there's no spoilers. Vince will give a brief review of the movie, share some thoughts, and of course, then rate the film. The Daily Ratings are always fair, honest, and most importantly, they're consistent. On today's show, Vince will be rating and reviewing... Pineapple Express, directed by David Gordon Green. We have newly released Past Lives by Celine Song. Pain Hustlers by David Yates. Five Nights at Freddy's by Emma Tammy. And finally, Killers of the Flower Moon, directed by Martin Scorsese. So it's going to be an awesome show, folks. Stay tuned and enjoy. Mr. Vincent Daly, how we doing, buddy? How's it going, Tommy? Uh, it's go- going okay for me. How have you been? How was your week of movies? A week was good. Uh, we are out of the the horror vibes of October. Uh, I guess less Five Nights at Freddy's, but it's right. not really that scary. So. <laughs> yeah, we're getting there. We're, we're, we're getting in out November. Uh, do we have a theme for November? Honestly, no. <laughs> November is a weird month, as I would say, this year. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be a hodgepodge of just random stuff coming out. Yeah. But we got some the... good stuff. Some good stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess it'll it'll uh, be yet to be determined if um, Napoleon is good or not. I think I think every trailer I see about Napoleon, I think it's going to be bad. Okay. I don't know why. I watched the first trailer. Okay. And you know me, I'm trying to stay away from trailers sure, sure. this year. Yeah. Uh, and I think More it's... so than me, actually. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's going to be trash. <laughs> I yes. thought it was going to be I'm trash beforehand. <laughs> like, absolute trash. It just, ah, man, you know? It looks... It's good old Ridley Scott. Like The he, way it's filmed, it seems, yeah. looks like a cheap TV movie. <laughs> you, like, you know what I mean? It's, it's not like... A, it doesn't even look like an HBO show. It looks yeah. more like a History Channel show. Oh, bad. wow, wow. Um so yeah. that's where I'm at on it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm on the same page. But we'll we'll see if that's good. We of course have the the Hunger Games films. Uh, we'll do a deep dive. Oh, for. that's right. Vaguely excited for that. Uh, and that actor is the same actor in Five Nights at Freddy's, correct? Uh, the boy. Uh, maybe. Maybe I don't know. Uh, I don't oh know. wait, no. Maybe he's the Maze Runner guy. No, I don't know. Even uh, know. yes, definitely one of those young adult uh, type of. I get lost season. with all those yeah, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so I we have a lot of new releases, which is cool. Yeah, uh, yeah. Past Lives is a bit of a question mark for me. Uh, I watched Pain Hustlers and Killers of the Flower Moon. Oh, wow. Yes. Talk about different ends of the spectrum. I know. <laughs> we were spoken, we talked on the phone yesterday, and we went the whole conversation without me. At the very end, you said, did you manage to watch anything? <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, was like, yeah, I watched yeah. them. I was like, I watched them. <laughs> Code name. Don't ask me that question. Don't ask. <laughs> Um, but some big movies here. Um, Five Nights at Freddy's is killing it at the box office. I believe, it. I believe it's the best kind of Blumhouse-related film. Yes. 
Uh, okay, it is. Yeah, yeah. Top top Blumhouse opening and makes sense. Uh, I'm actually, you know, for what it's worth, I don't really, you know, enjoy Five Nights at Freddy's as like a brand or a game or anything like that. But it was it was interesting to do a deep dive into why this popularity is so big and, and hopefully I can kind of make sense of it um, for anyone vastly confused okay. about this. <laughs> you know, why is this movie doing so well? So. <laughs> um, and then, of course, Scorsese. I mean... Uh, and we got Scorsese on, yeah. I mean, man... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Which we will get into the the nerve wracking, uh, the uh, <laughs> the panic to <laughs> to actually have to uh, review a movie from Marty. Uh, I was I was very nervous. So really, uh, uh, yeah. Um, I I think when I saw the trailer and realizing that at some point on the podcast I was going to have to review and seriously review a new Marty movie, mm-hmm. I, first thought was, oh great, I have the pleasure of doing this. And the immediate second thought was, Jesus Christ, I have to review a Marty movie. <laughs> like you know what I mean? Well, I watched it too, so don't worry. Yeah. The two <laughs> shoes to back you up. Um, Okay, so before all that, let's take it back. We are continuing with the Judd Apatow study. This is Pineapple Express from 2008, rated R, an hour and 51. The crew is together on this one. Everyone knows the name. I think this was a big one. This is kind of like a highlight comedy film. Released the the same weekend as Dark Knight. (laughs) I did not know that. I didn't know that that at all. wild, yeah. Oh my god! Would you like talk about you know suicide? <laughs> I mean, but the funny thing is, it created its own name for himself. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Even Ab- of the like the noise that was Dark Knight. Sure. Yeah. Um, okay, let's get into it right away. How was it? <laughs> well, Pineapple Express uh, was uh, a good reset, uh, folks. After a brief horror hiatus, we are back again with the Judd Apatow writing study, and uh, with him playing third fiddle alongside the writing duo of Seth Rogen and longtime collaborator Evan Goldberg. Uh, this coming only one year after the millennial classic Superbad in 2007 with uh, Goldberg and, and Rogen. Like I mentioned in the new Exorcist review. Uh, this is directed by David Gordon Green with him pulling his favorite collaborator, Danny McBride. Mm-hmm. And I think um, Pineapple Express stands out even among uh, a very star-studded comedy cast in all of these Apatow movies as all this kind of talent represents a perfect funnel for the era of comedy, which I think will only be slightly outdone in 2013's This is the End, where these names and more will come together again and actually be self-referential in in their kind of positions in Hollywood. Yeah, and I feel like that that movie, too, I think it's a bit of a closing of the book, or maybe yeah, maybe a starting it, of a new chapter of kind of that genre of film, totally mm-hmm. on the the decline kind of sure as far as just being made Mm -hmm. and then also a little bit of then they go off and do their own things a little bit yeah absolutely Uh, and also a breakaway from franco of course and seth rogan yeah so that definitely we are covering this as the end uh no no Uh, more so just brought it up that you don't see this pact of this type of cast again until until that that. okay gotcha I have to be honest and say I was a little rusty in spotting the comedic trends of Apatow in this, just a little bit too much horror this month. Uh, But uh, like we discussed in the previous entry for Walk Hard, this only has sprinklings of Judd's style uh, and uh, lets that structure of the comedy take the lead rather than being a free-form kind of palette for his talent to do their thing either in an improv way or in kind of sketch style Mm -hmm. uh, for Judd. That structure for Pineapple Express 
is, of course, a stoner comedy and has a right spot in the Hall of Fame for these type of movies. Um, this is mostly because its peer films, you know, aren't exactly known for quality. <laughs> uh, you know, examples of this subgenre are, of course, 1978's Up in Smoke with Cheech and Chong. Uh, 1998's Half Bake uh, with um, uh, oh my gosh uh, yeah. with uh, why can't I think of his name with Chappelle uh, and even uh, a Comedy Central classic 2001's How High with uh, some Wu Tang Clan members you know all not super great movies I mean maybe <laughs> you know definitely falls into a guilty pleasure but not super great on their own surprisingly though that th- the through line between all of these movies is not weed. Rather, it's a tried-and-true buddy comedy formula, uh, which this movie understands perfectly by adding in action elements to the mix and stands apart from these comparisons. I think Pineapple Express is, is a different caliber because it is yeah, it's definitely a stoner comedy, but it's also very much a stoner action film as well, which is uh, unique uh, and I, I think uh, plays off it's well. definitely unique. Yeah, yeah I, I, think, I think in ways this is closer to like, uh, to closer to like a lethal weapon kind of buddy cop formula than than actually okay, all uh, right. you know the buddy comedy of a stoner comedy it's so. crazy to say oh my gosh what is the, oh i just had it <laughs> bill and ted's excellent adventure oh sure yeah well i guess they, they don't really smoke they don't weed sp- right it's just, just assumed stonerish it's <laughs> yeah, <just> yeah. <laughs> You're heavily implied right <laughs> yeah uh definitely in 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 that in that category To quote James Franco, though, in this, uh, Pineapple Express refers to the dopest dope you've ever smoked, and this one-of-a-kind weed is a unicorn compared to your average dime bag, and becomes an unlucky mark for Seth Rogen when he witnesses a murder scene. He races to his drug dealer, played by James Franco, to come up with an escape plan, and while their constant smoking results in some unexpected wins, they can't help but stumble into more trouble with the crime. I'm Lord that controls all of their bud. I think uh, the main area you can see Apatow's involvement is in how clever the story is, um, even within this stoner comedy formula, which by no means is clever. Right. I, I feel like the scrambling paranoia that comes <laughs> along with this is is twisted into an action movie where characters are rightfully looking over their shoulders, not knowing how much shit they've stepped into, but. That really does play to maybe some bad weed or maybe being too high <laughs> and you're now losing your cool. So uh, when it comes down to that, I, I think there's um, like Walk Hard, there is a th- that structure is helping the comedy quite a bit, much more than what I would say we felt in Knocked Up. Uh, we felt in forty year old version. Yeah. yeah. So I, it, it's hard because both of these entries, I, I don't feel are great representatives of Apatow, so I am excited to kind of wrap things up with uh, Funny People, which definitely more feels like his brand. Kind of back up to him, yeah. Yeah, back up to his main idea to it, but uh, at the same time, there is a lot of, <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, it sounds silly, but there's there's a lot of intelligent thought around <laughs> making this true to uh, kind of a stoner action film in, in what it's concept, what it's gunning for, basically. And in that chaoticness, I mean, it's it's that's magic for this group of guys making the film yeah. and then just making it 
a joy to watch and sit back. Yeah, absolutely. In the chaotic moments, it's when comedy can kind of just... I think that's when they're best at riffing during those moments, and you get genuinely good laughs in those moments. Absolutely. And I feel like, um, like I've commented before with Seth Rogen's ability to just thrive in that buddy environment, Mm -hmm. uh, my my only thought is that maybe this would have been more appropriate if we did a Rogen-Goldberg writing study coming off of uh, Superbad, because this just feels like Superbad bad more so than 40 old virgin or uh, not yeah 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 so you know half-baked ideas uh rogan and franco are constantly coming up with in their smoke sessions are uh, ironically 100 on point as the dealers are right on their tail this also allows the payoff to be comedy and action with this film having a pulp fiction like element uh that the hitmen are constantly on the tail of the duo and adding to just as much of the comedy, the action itself, that mm-hmm, is. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, uh, there's a, a, the iconic scene of Franco uh, driving in the cop car and, and, and kicking his, his, uh, his, his leg through the windshield. Great subversion of, of that action, which I bring up because it's something that I praise that type of subversion in The Nice Guys okay. uh, and that type of comedy, and I think it works just the same here. I, I would say, uh, watching this in 2023, the most surprising part is mainly the, the heavy canceled vibes <laughs> of this movie. We got James Franco in this, uh, an early ro- role for Amber Heard. Yeah, my God, that's right. Uh, also, Amber Heard is a high schooler, and Seth Rogen is dating a high schooler <laughs> in this. It just feels gross. You know, personally, I don't think any of this damages the film necessarily, but uh, it's definitely something that I couldn't stop thinking about. It really was in... Notable. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, I just could not stop, especially this like dating the high schooler thing. Yeah, I guess it it makes us quickly know that Seth Rogen's character is a, an ass. Right. <laughs> but I don't know. It just it it, it felt dated in that way. Uh, the performances are a lot of fun, though. Like I mentioned in previous reviews, uh, and, and and even just a little bit ago, I think Rogan works best when having another guy to bounce his comedy off mm-hmm. of. Franco is surprisingly good in this, perfectly capturing that that hassle uh, that comes with any bad drug dealer, just like <laughs> eye-rolling, oh boy, what are we going to put up with now today? Uh, you know, supporting cast is, if there's any kind of through line among these Apatow films, supporting cast is is really, yet again, another highlight. I think my personal favorites are split between Danny McBride and actually Craig Robinson. I think Craig Robinson is excellent yeah. in this. I th- I like both of those guys. Yeah, and like yeah. I, I, we, we talked about it before, but Danny McBride really did. I didn't like him at first, and mm-hmm. now he's probably one of my favorite guys. Yeah, in yeah. that whole era, that genre. <laughs> Absolutely, he's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. And apparently, just real quick, uh, going back to this is the end. There was so much improv on that film, and every single one mm. said that Danny McBride was by far the funniest. <laughs> that's great. He's just so naturally funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. And Craig Robertson, he's always just good. You can always I, count I, I on Craig so. Robertson to kind of like carry that role. You yeah, know? I haven't seen his comedy vehicles like uh, Hot Tub Time Machine or anything like that. Uh, you know, but, when he gets more of a leading role, but yeah. he was always like the funniest part of any scene that he was a part of. And again, it's this Pulp Fiction aspect. Yeah, it's this. Uh, it's uh, funny hitmen, which uh, I, I like quite a bit. And we can skip Hot Tub Time Machine for multiple <laughs> reasons. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for multiple Kuzak reasons. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I forgot. Yeah. 
I think what's funny in the edit that's unique to Pineapple Express versus the comedies we covered so far, and then even comedies of you know the late two thousands, um, all these scenes kind of run a tiny bit longer than expected, mm. almost like it was edited by someone high, uh, and and sometimes this doesn't pay off for characters, but other times. It really works. And for these two, Danny McBride and, and, and Craig Robinson, I think it really works well that the the scenes just run just a, a, a tad bit too long, but they're always the funniest beats. Okay, uh, so it doesn't that, make you feel uncomfortable. No, no. If they're welcome. Yeah, they're okay. welcome. And it, it just, if anything, I mean, it seems like they, it, it translates how much fun they're having in the production of okay. this film, in the filming of yeah. it. Overall, though, I think this movie does the impossible it makes a decent action film wearing the skin of a stoner comedy. Uh, that outer layer is by no means known for quality either, and I think this stands apart because it lets the cliché stoner jokes jokes shape the film, but not all of it. I feel like the action is what we're, is the brevity we need to then feel fresh when we come back to any kind of cliche stoner joke or anything like that. My only disappointment in watching this again, I found it to be in the same range of the other films we covered from Apatow so far. You know, I, I didn't really find this to be a film that I, I felt more strongly about or even less uh, than 40-year-old version. Really? Knocked Up. Or even a little bit of Walk Hard. They're all kind of just landing in the same spot. And that's a, that surprises me. Really? Yeah, it does. I mean, Walk Hard, I think, is definitely the king of the of the um, of the study so far. Okay. Uh, not that it has to be a competition, but you know, it's the rankings. So. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, if anything, my takeaway here is that this this again does the impossible and actually makes some quality out of something that you know should be kind of just throw away in yeah. this stoner comedy subgenre. And as well, I'm excited to see how that mold is finally broken with funny people, and if I like it or not, and if it can actually turn me to. Liking a good old Adam Sandler <laughs> position, uh, role. Uh, with that said, we're going to go ahead and get Pineapple Express 2008, a 66. Wow, okay, 66. You're right. They all kind of are landing in their whole thing. I, I guess I was under the impression that this was probably going to perform the best. Hmm, really? Because I don't Dewey Cox, it, Walk Hard just feels like a smaller movie. Mm. And I don't know if that's because it just did terrible in the box office. No one ever talks about it. Yeah, like it, right. it, it, we talk about it, right? And that's yeah, a very right. just us thing. Yeah, you know? it's, it, it's skewed. The success of Pineapple Express and people seeing it as just mm. one of the biggest those comedies of the era. Yeah, I just thought naturally would be more of a standout. Yeah, the, the cast is bigger and it's just more expansive. Kind sure, of. sure. But uh, okay, sixty six percent. For Judd Apatow, you're right, man. He's really in that pocket. I know, and, and I, I sixty six is a good movie, right? Exactly. I think all of these, if anything, the takeaway is all of these are pretty good movies. Um, it's just that I was, I, I don't know, I was maybe just expecting there would be more variance in mm-hmm. between them, and at least for my thoughts on it. So. I think as far as like big, and you've you've kind of felt a little bit of the same, and um, yeah, you watched Forty Old Virgin. Years. That same type I was more of like, like than you. Yeah, very true, very true. But that same type of okay. You know that that's yes. that's that's where I'm feeling with a lot yes. of these. Yeah. So. Okay. All right. Wow. Okay. So six six. I, I'm just thinking in my head now. I would almost think that Adam Sandler has the, <laughs> is the worst of com. Like, because you just have these comedy teams that once when they have one big hit, they just roll and roll and roll. Sure. Sure. Adam Sandler. Then I think you have. Um, uh, if you, uh, listen, I like you saying that. 
I, 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 I'm down with it. I don't know if that's for everyone, though. I think Happy Madison. No, I'm talking about you. No, you specifically I'm talking about. You specifically. I think we go Adam Sandler, then Judd Apatow, and then you are probably an Adam McKay is your top comedy guy, potentially. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. we we, we'll do a study on him, I'm sure, in the future. Oh, sure, sure, yeah. And and that's who really takes the throne with these Hangover movies. No, no, not the Hangover movies. Uh, well, uh, the Will Ferrell. Yes, uh, the, yeah, that's more appropriate. The Will Ferrell, Anchorman type of stuff. Anchorman, Talladega. Yeah. And then, of course, he's doing the different stuff with Big Shore and Vice. Yeah. But uh, anyway, okay, so that's that. 66% for Pineapple Express. Now, before we move on... Is Past Lives in theaters? No, the, the release no. is weird. Uh, it, it, it came out, I think, around March this year for a wide release. A twenty four, I believe, picked it up at that point. It is. I, I mean, I called it a new, new release in the beginning. Yeah, I mean, not a new release, but I, I, I would consider it a new release in the sense that this was going to be probably part of like a catch up episode for me uh, for twenty twenty three. Okay, so, so screw it. We'll put in a new release. So, <laughs> real quick, we want to remind people that we're going off for the value for value model here, folks. So basically, the point is, Vin and I every week we host the podcast we run the website things like that but you all help produce so we are completely producer supported uh for the daily ratings and basically you become a producer by financially donating to the show so you go to the daily ratings.com you go to the donations tab and through any monetary support you become an actual legit credited producer of the daily ratings it's any amount you want and that's the whole value for value part because five dollars to you is a lot different than five dollars to the other person so we have some set donations like a monthly or weekly we have some funny like one-timers buy vin a movie ticket for mm, instance and yes you want to become a godfather 95 dollars, <laughs> things like that or if you have a random number in your mind if you have a random number this week or you're feeling a certain amount um there, there there's no set amount that you have to donate it's whatever you feel you're getting value from us do we make you laugh, cry? Are you liking it, hating it for whatever reason? <laughs> uh, the cool thing is when you donate, you can write in a note to us. And this part of the podcast right here, this is when we're going to actually read it. Whatever you write, whether it be uh, critiques, comments, questions, we're going to address it here right now. So it's kind of cool. You know, it, you're showing the value you're getting. And also, we're going to take time to mm-hmm. uh, listen to what you have to say, essentially. It's a through line to you. So again, it's dailyratings.com. Go to the donations tab and you can become a producer today. We thank you all so much who have produced. We hope so many of you will in the future. All right, with that, Finn, let's keep it going. Sure. We are in uh, – you're going to have to set this up a little bit because, like yeah. I said, I just called it a question mark because knew nothing about it. Yeah. But this is called Past Lives. It's directed by Celine Song, and this is a Korean movie? Uh, it is. I think it's a, a domestic movie as far as A24 producing it, but okay, so a it, very Korean story and a very Korean cast as gotcha. well. Okay. Past Live is a semi-new release still, coming out earlier this year, and, and it landed on my list and was originally going to be part of, you know, um, a catch-up episode for 2023 that I'm still kind of kicking around, but actually that list was growing larger than five movies, right. so I figured, you know, uh, while on my time away, I was mostly working on a new secret special project, but oh. I needed to, you know, cover some ground on this week movies, and Tom knows how much of a scramble it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, But I was really happy I did, because Past Lives, is a special little movie, and I had a I had a really wonderful time with it. Uh, this is outside A24's primary horror comfort zone, and even further, this pushes into being a very Korean heavy script, concept, experience, and cast. Um, this comes from first time writer director Celine Song, and uh, serves as a very personal feeling film. 
That's not something I bring up too much because, uh, you know, in the process of making a movie, a lot gets lost in translation. But I want to bring it up as an early praise because, as we always talk about, writer-directors, you know, a talent to pay attention to for how in charge of the vision uh, of their art they are. And I would say that comes through. Uh, Song is a powerful voice uh, coming out of the gate, being able to create something so personal and something so intimate, uh, emotionally speaking, uh, with this film. Uh, The movie is authentic to a Korean experience in a way that no other director could touch. Uh, And turns out that is very important to the story and why this movie works so well. Past Lives does the impossible and tries to tell a pure romance. To be honest, uh, I don't know if it's a... I I was walking into this thing thinking it was a romance, uh, knowing a little bit from the trailer and, Mm -hmm. and it being on my radar. But it really isn't a romance at all. Um, I think that's the that's the the trick and the depth of the film. I personally found it very useful watching In the Mood for Love recently uh, from some Hong Kong cinema uh, as uh, I would be shocked if that film didn't shape the hidden romance of the story. That That's just an assumption on my part. I didn't research or, or look into interviews with Song uh, as a director if that's an inspiration, but it feels very identical and, and the, let that be a mark of quality too because In the Mood for Love was a fantastic movie. I like that movie a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. We follow Nora, played by Greta Lee, a Korean girl that immigrates with her family to Canada at a young age from Korea. The, The story jumps from 12 years ahead to her becoming a writer in New York before once again jumping 12 years into her accomplished adulthood in in the city. But those brief days of sweet childhood, uh, she connects with a young boy, and what starts as a middle school crush grows into a long-distance friendship, and then finally, a tender but bittersweet romance. Honestly, we learn so much about Nora, not through her own words or not, not how she reacts to situations, but through her relationships uh, and how she became a new person leaving Korea, even at such a young age. Uh, she's got to be, I think, either 10, 12, something like that in Korea. Um, the film kind of captures a wonderful brushstroke of an immigrant's dream and offers the harsh truth around the shell that we molt when leaving our home. Uh, That deeper wrinkle to her story is what makes this film worth the watch. It's not just a a normal romance, or it's not even just a slow-paced 824 romance. Mm -hmm. It's this story of immigration, and it's this insight to uh, what we leave behind in going to a new place, going to a new home, uh, that uh, I think really was what pushes this film into uh, worth your time to, to give it a watch. Not only uh, is this experience of identity loss fleshed out for any viewers that aren't immigrants, myself included, mm-hmm. you know, this is this is a foreign concept and I feel it's a good mark for the film of how well it communicates those feelings. Right, right. But in addition, uh, there is a meaningful story that has something to say about it. I feel like there, there's there's degrees of where this film won me over. It's not just a romance. It has some insight into this uh, experience of, of, of immigrating. And, and on top of that, I feel like it had something meaningful to say about it rather than just even just presenting it as a theme for our characters. Yeah, and it doesn't seem, if you're talking about it this highly, I feel like maybe in not-so-great hands, mm. it can seem extremely 
what we always talk about is fish out of water stuff. Sure. And maybe not jokes, but just cliche things that you can almost assume. Yeah. Then one would write, but it seems more personal and much more. Yeah. Just real almost. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so much so that uh, I think Nora's character uh, has a, a mother that's a director that maybe echoes some experiences of the writer director song. I think uh, there's there's a lot there that it just again without even knowing the, yeah. the story of uh, Celine Strong or song there's there's a degree there that it just feels like such a personal piece and and good for that reason has depth because of that and is this um is this all subtitles or is this uh, no not all subtitles heavy subtitles though okay the reason why I ask is because then now you have so much has to be conveyed through body language mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. just as like American viewers sure. yeah and that's that that's also impressive yeah you know? and, and and i think it's a good thing that you bring up because um it's tough not only anyone that any any audience member might not have these experiences but there's also a different way relationships are are handled uh coming from korea right, uh, right. her relationship with her mother her relationship with this childhood love interest it's different um it's uh reserved and in that way is where my comparison for in the mood love comes into play that mm-hmm. it's it's very distinctly a, a asian kind of romance and how it unfolds and you know, what, the, the tenderness that comes with that. And almost more shocking, so I don't really like this actress too much either. Oh, really? So she plays... Where's she from? Uh, well, in The Morning Show. She's oh, more of a, okay. a... For the past... Two, for season two and three. Uh-huh. And I, I never really found her acting all that well. Oh, okay I, I, okay. I don't think she was very good at acting. Maybe... I think she's also in the wrong part. Also, who she has to, like... Who she's up against in every scene too mm. is just much more, much more of an aggressive character. Mm. Than what I've never she's seen the morning show, yeah. so I, I really don't know. So I really don't love the character, and I don't <laughs> think her acting is all that great. So it, it's very surprising to hear. Yeah, and I, cool. That's cool. I, I think um, maybe that's again a um, a payoff for how personal this is. That right, uh, right. I have no doubt that maybe she's or Greta Greta Lee is is taking notes from the director directly uh, in in maybe a shared experience mm-hmm. uh, of uh, coming. To to yeah, Canada yeah. is is what the story is, but ultimately coming to the West. I feel like a fair warning. Uh, just being honest about the film is that the a twenty four ness uh, is is clocked up here. <laughs> this movie is very slow. It achieves uh, a good tone, atmosphere, and mood that is worth the pacing being a crawl. But it is a crawl. It is uh, a crawl. Let's okay. let's not get it twisted. It's, it's a crawl. <laughs> yeah, there really isn't anything bombastic in the drama. You know, the film is is for me. It was kind of comprised of little paper cuts of emotion that kind of build slowly uh, and and get to you. I also think the pacing feels appropriate for the, how the soundtrack sets the tone. And in a lot of ways, it reminded me of Marcel the Shell. The score ah. in that, in many ways, where it just fits so perfectly to the mood of our characters, mm-hmm. soft, soft synths, bells, uh, atmospheric music, almost. You know, I was I was half expecting to look and maybe see disaster piece again. It's not the case here, but <laughs> uh, once again, uh, just a, just a perfect match. That I think these are all reasons why I dig a twenty four. It very much equally on the backhand could be. A criticism, or just not someone's bag to to watch something this slow. For sure, I mean, and this is getting some pretty positive reviews across the board too. And, and it is a thing of if you're engaging enough, like if the content is mm. there and engaging, then that's okay. Now, yeah. if you take something like A24, is what was it called, sheep or goat? Oh, lamb, or, <laughs> lamb. <laughs> that's what it was. Cigar. <laughs> 
So if you or worse, ghost story. Ghost story was oh, the one where fr- the woman hates, eats the cake in eats, entirety. Was it like the whole apple pie or something? Yeah, 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 yeah. She from start to finish, she sits down and she eats a whole pie. <laughs> and, like, All right. and that's when it's frustrating. But yeah. this slope, like the dialogue, is cool. If you're engaged yes. with the character, if emotions getting crossed, then broadly speaking, it's something that is worthwhile. Yeah, yeah. and I think it's it's going to be a topic that we we touch on uh, definitely for you know the big boy release. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> this week that um is pacing justified is the runtime justified right and i think that, that definitely is the case yeah here. it sounds like this one maybe across the board is a little bit more uh palatable yeah. then you take something like sheep uh or uh, what, <laughs> yeah. what is it called lamb lamb you take something like lamb where talk about hit or miss you probably have some people that are just like would love it oh, and a lot man. of people not loving it uh, you yeah. know that was a challenging review to not talk about spoilers yeah. lamb, lamb was that was that was, that was hard mode my my main criticism to this story, however, is that um, it gets very awkward, uh, especially in scenes with all three of our main characters. The film flirts with a love triangle in the plot, and it just produces some very odd scenes. I think this is accentuated because, again, in a good way, in a in-depth way, this film really isn't about the romance. It's about what we leave behind in leaving our home. Mm-hmm. This this awkwardness, it, it just comes into, you know, straight up just scenes where Nora's current love interest is in the presence of her past love interest. <laughs> and it's and they're speaking Korean and he doesn't know Korean. So it's just like this, <laughs> like, ooh, your skin crawls right, sometimes right. with this. And uh, I mean, if you forget about the guy, it's it's wonderfully romantic and it's wonderfully touching, but... You really can't forget about a guy. There, there, there's a bar scene that this opens up in, and then we kind of loop around to it in the film, and it's just like, whoa. How about you take a hike? I don't know. Pull, pull the it car around. It hits that hard? It hits- yeah, it's just, oh, it's just. Pull the car around. The poor guy. The poor guy. <laughs> um, you know, and when it comes down to how that awkwardness is amplified is just that it's such a Korean uh, story, Korean mm-hmm. experience. Yeah, this uh, this writer, New York Jewish character, just just he can't compete. You know, he's just not on that level. And and the story definitely makes makes note of that. But I, I feel like that is my main critique is that I'm happy that the romance really isn't the point of the film. But if it was the point of the film, these awkward moments would would kill it a lot more okay. for me. Okay, uh, I was uh, jumping out of my skin a little bit. Uh, <laughs> Uh, folks, it has been a secret responsibility of mine as a movie critic, or a, a starting, uh, blossoming movie critic, to announce when something made me cry. The first time on the podcast was last year uh, with Blonde, uh, which was just a assault. Yeah. <laughs> I think I was just crying because I wanted to be done. And now, secondly, we have this here with Past Lives, mostly holding it together on the plane. Mostly holding it together. Wow, on a plane, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They say emotions get high up yeah, there. It's, I know. Wait, did, did you hear? We'll, go, we'll get into it. I'll talk about it later. I'll talk about it later. But, uh, you know, anyways, you know, very excited to see more from this director as if Song can continue to capture such a vulnerability in her films she will be a standout voice in cinema and wow. one I'm very excited to see we're gonna go ahead and give Past Lives a 73 73 okay which maybe thinking it would hit a little bit harder but I guess for the simplicity of the story or just kind of yeah and I think 73 also balances not taking away any of the praise but a little bit of the boring aspects right. a little bit of the 824 and again a little bit of this awkwardness in this uh, boy odd man out <laughs> <laughs> it really affected you huh <laughs> 
Uh, it's just <laughs> uh, anyone that watches the film, you will experience the same. It's just like, oh man, my you're guy. tearing up. It's for the guy. <laughs> yeah, my, my my boy can't compete. He's, he's out. He's out. All right, so seventy three, but a very positive seventy three. Oh, in absolutely. a lot of ways, absolutely. And um, it definitely represents what a seventy should be in the sense that makes make some time to watch it. It's it's worth it. Yeah, I mean, this know? came out of left field. I mean, I yeah. didn't hear about it. I don't think a lot of other people heard about it. Yeah, it was sometime in March, I want to say, uh, came out. But uh, like you said a little bit earlier, getting a lot of hype. Yeah. Uh, almost universal praise. Okay, excellent. So Celine's song as well. She doesn't have really anything up and coming. I can only imagine like this is going to lift her up a lot. Yeah. Um, there's going to be people going after her probably a decent amount of sure. money. Sure, so. and, and I think the challenge there is how do you make something this vulnerable again? Uh, and, or pivot. Uh, Sure. Because how do you make? I mean, it sounds like this is a per- personal story from her. Yeah. So how do you pivot? She, you know, I'm sure she has all kinds of ideas or mm-hmm. things, mm-hmm. routes, routes she wants to go. Um, that's interesting. But yeah. that's good that she's cool. This reminds me. This whole thing reminds me of uh, first time director, first time writer, personal story. We covered this one film where it was telling the story of the director, and it was like a mom and daughter are vacationing. In some sort of like foreign place, and it's a little awkward and weird. And oh, um, not mom and daughter, um, husband and uh, oh, not husband and daughter, uh, father and daughter. Oh, okay. Uh, it was, um, mm, I uh, forget that it wasn't a big movie, but it kind I of know. fell flat. A24 as well. Uh, it's it's uh, after Sun. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, wow. Yeah. And yeah, oh. um, it, it, definitely that's a good call because uh, th- that was something that I feel was very personal as well. Yeah. Telling telling that kind of story, and uh, I think my I, main thing there was just kind of. I don't think the payoff was there. I think for the time yeah. and the and the and the the, the boring road it took you on, <laughs> it was not worth it in the end. Right, right, and it's actually a good comparison because I feel past lives succeeds at informing me as someone not in the know of what this immigrant experience is like successfully now and emotionally affected by it. Where with After Sun. I wasn't even able to step into that father-daughter type of relationship. Right. I, I don't feel like it, it related as effectively. Okay, so. excellent. Okay, all right. So 73% for past lives. And as you were saying, it gets that that in-the-mood-for-love kind of vibes. Mm, yes. Uh, that was episode 85, if people want to go back and check out. Great callback, yeah. Uh, because that was when kind of our, our very small dip, uh, first initial into kind of Chinese Hong Kong cinema. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Very yeah. cool. All right, Vince, so with that, let's uh, let's keep on moving on here. This is our big Netflix release. Um, this is on everybody's homepage. Mm. It's really talked up because of the two big actors in it. This is Pain Hustlers. As we said, or as I said earlier, I watched this one, so it'll be fun <laughs> to go back. I was, I'm curious where this lands I, with you. I was alluded to how you felt about it yesterday when we spoke on the phone. <laughs> and I didn't want to say it because I had already watched it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I was just, it made me laugh. <laughs> That's good. That's Let's get good. into it a little bit. Pain Hustlers. How did you like it? I, well, yeah, didn't really like it. <laughs> uh, we're back again with David Yates. Uh, the last time covering the three Fantastic Beast films. And this time, thankfully, without any wand spanking. Yep, yep. Um, <laughs> while this... Film couldn't be farther from a world of magic. It's a true story approach. Feels very cookie cutter. Uh, I would say if there's one thing I need to make clear about this film is that it is a imitator uh, in style, in structure, of the true story, in acting performances. And so generic, in fact, that this movie tips from being kind of, you know, acceptable Netflix fodder, fodder to something that I really just didn't think was worth the time for a watch. Um, mm-hmm. I don't, I, you know, I don't want to give away the goat on the Tommy Two Shoes, but did you 
feel satisfied with this movie? No. <laughs> okay. No. Uh, the funny thing you said, copycat vibes. Yeah. Um, this is tr- this wishes it was a copycat. Oh. It was aspiring to be a cap- copycat. Yeah. And failed yeah. completely. Yeah. Um, there was moments where I'm just like, okay, it's finally picking up a little bit here. It's mm. this. It felt like a small movie trying to be a big movie, mm. like three different directions. Sure. Fa- yes. Failing at all directions. Yes. Uh, and- split too much in its focus. Yes. I, I didn't feel like it was splitting its focus. I, I felt like it was just aspiring to be on top of the mountain and never getting there. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, constantly just kind of like on the hike up and not Good. getting there. Well, I, I'm glad we're on the same and page And that's how I felt, one. yeah. I yeah. Honestly, it, just real quick, I, I didn't feel like it was all over the place or in different directions. Mm, okay. I felt like it was almost too one note and too simple. Oh, interesting. Simply shot. It, it, it's not TV movie. But mm. just almost like first-time director, low-budget movie. Yeah, not David Yates. <laughs> right, exactly. And not coming right. off of like the money that Fantastic Beasts made. Exactly. And partnering with Netflix, yeah. And absolutely. God knows Netflix that just, I don't even know the budget for the film. Yeah. And I just, it couldn't have been much. Yeah. Based on the scenes, based on the cast, based on, uh, I don't know. I, I just getting small-time vibes trying to be a big-time movie. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, and folks, I think anyone could identify this by watching the trailer, but this movie desperately wants to be a Adam McKay-style or a Wolf of Wall Street-style slick story, but doesn't have it where it counts. I think mainly it flubs its rule of cool, dulled by a muddy ethical angle. Despite any real facts connecting to the characters, the movie is afraid to commit. You know, like it's big pharma, you know, what we're talking about here. Uh, Everyone knows it's scummy shit. I I wish the movie just leaned into it more. Instead, it's constantly concerned with Emily Blunt's um, character portrayal and kind of, again, losing its own appeal in this trying to make sure that at least our main character is ethical or we, we see that there's a speckle of good person in yeah. there. And that's where I'd actually would say it's trying to be in different angles or definitely, like you said, muddy because mm. they're they're trying to split the baby with her character big time. Mm. And I will exactly. say it is a bit of a flip-flop and I would say going in different directions on that for sure. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, Wolf of Wall Street, uh, you don't think Jordan Belford is worth redeeming in any point. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's, that's where it fails in, in, in what it's trying to achieve, what it's trying to copy. So, uh, this film may appear to have similar narration, a Scorsese-style narration, a cynical attitude, but it comes off completely differently when the baseline is always trying to prove good intentions. It's pharma, it's opioid crisis, lean into it, and that's really my problem with the film. Payne Hustler's story is set back in 2011 during the rise of big pharma drug sales, and With an age-of-spin type of mentality uh, that is intentionally blind to the growing opioid crisis. Chris Evans' own words, Big Pharma is about getting close as possible to the gray line without crossing over it. The dramatic center of the film is directly on Emily Blunt's struggling mother character, Eliza Drake, uh, willing to do anything to make something out of her life, including... Playing dirty in an already dirty industry, uh, regardless of the impact it has on countless lives. Uh, but don't worry, it's okay. She has a daughter she loves. <laughs> That's basically the film. Don't worry. 
She's she's a mother. She cares for the daughter. Don't worry. Uh, uh, I can't believe I'm saying this, Tom. In a week, in the same week, we have a three hour plus film. But I feel like the pacing of the story might be too quick. Did you feel this that, that the it didn't was... have impact on on certain things? Like... Okay, the movie lacked impact. Yeah, absolutely. It had nothing for me to do with the length. Okay, all in the okay. way it was shot. Mm. All in the way it, it it didn't feel like a big movie, and I don't mean that as far as like the spectacle of a big film yeah. or anything like that. I mean like. I wanted more people on set. Sure. I wanted the set pieces to be bigger. Mm-hmm. It seemed like I think this is the first time I'm saying this, but it felt more like a COVID movie. And I oh, know for and wow. we're way out of that. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. was definitely not a COVID movie yeah, yeah. when it was shot, but it felt like that. Right. Especially when those they're in like the parking lot of that strip mall and whatnot. Just like, everything everything yeah. seemed smaller scale. Yeah. So when you say was the pacing too uh how did you put it? Too quick. I felt it was it was too quick to the punch on a lot of these things. Yes, it uh, fell flat or wasn't quite getting there. Yeah, it, yeah. It, I didn't feel like the pace, I didn't feel like the movie was moving too fast. Mm. I want to say that I didn't feel mm-hmm. like it was moving too fast. It was moving at a too inconsequential mm. way. Didn't have the impact with it. Right. So yeah. to me, it didn't feel slow. It didn't feel fast. It just felt blah. Yeah, I'm 100 percent right. Almost there with every you. scene wasn't hitting, and just it just this feeling. It was just yeah. not selling it. It exactly. wasn't selling it, especially in the the drama of her being this single mother and and doing everything she can for her daughter. Like her daughter suffers from seizures that kind of come out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is no dialogue or under under theme of it maybe being connected to the troublesome drug sales that she does. Sure. You know, I feel like that was a drop ball on this. It, it was a feeling that I had of every character uh, not hitting their mark. Yeah. Chris Evans is trying to be a character. He's not getting there. <laughs> yeah. um, even, oh my gosh, not Tucci. What is his name? Um, uh, he's in, he's in he's the... Ocean's 13. Yeah. He's the 13th in Ocean's 13. <laughs> Um, so uh, Andy Garcia. Yes, that's so right. And, even Andy Garcia trying to be a character, not fully hitting the marks. Uh, yeah, yeah. Emily Blunt was good. She looks great in the film. Sure. Yeah. Uh, even she wasn't hitting exactly how she wanted to. When yeah. she's in a way supposed to also share a Leo character of Wolf of Wall Street, right? Just right. like Chris Evans is supposed to be Leo in Wolf of <laughs> Wall Street's a little bit and not selling it. The yeah. the accents I felt were all over the place. Oh, for and sure. Not Especially being held. with Evans. Oh, Evans, man. and even just and Emily Blunt. It's like okay, are you going? for a basic American accent or are you picking up a Florida dialect that yeah. I've never heard in my life? Right, right. <laughs> so, at, and no one was being the character that they were clearly supposed to be and it was just kind of frustrating. Yeah. And that's what it felt like a smaller, lower budget Kind of unaccomplished film. Yeah, yeah, and and maybe just even just riding on the the idea of they have this kind of semi electric premise, this this opioid crisis idea, this yeah. uh, true story angle that and it's not, is that, that a complete true story. I couldn't even pick this up. I don't know. I was I was doing some research, but I honestly got tired of it. I, I, I was putting <laughs> it on the I was putting it on the site, yeah. getting ready, and I was shocked that history wasn't even part of the 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 description of it or yeah. history or even like a bio kind yeah, of pick type. I, I, I think uh, even connected around the IPO of their company in the story, I think names are swapped, uh, possibly for some legality of it. Okay, but, all right. Uh, but yeah, uh, that's that's where in my summary it's kind of inspired by Big Pharma at this time yeah. and then also opi- opioid crisis. So. Uh, circling back a little bit just to that impact, though, folks, uh, you know, the rapid rise of these drugs and how quickly the doctor partner programs lost control feels rushed. And it's no doubt a byproduct of the style 
this movie is going for. It's it's trying to go for this slick this slick yeah. appeal too much that I feel like it loses its own beats. Even if the nonfiction aspects line up here, the dramatic beats of the story do not feel earned. And most of all, it if this affects Blunt's character as you know both sides of her rough beginning to rapid success feels like it's on rails. Uh, and no time to impact the viewer. Yeah, completely. Yeah. And we should also note, just because we're kind of going back and forth with it, the yeah. whole, like, when we're talking about the opioid stuff going on and Big Pharma, we're talking about the direct doctor and provider relationship. Mm, yes, yes. Yeah, and trying to get more and more doctors to write the scripts. Yeah, very specifically Big Pharma sales. Right. Uh, and and the uh, sales floor is where really this uh, this Wolf of Wall Street comes into play. Yeah. Oh, pushing the numbers, got to sell more, got to <laughs> yeah, sell more type yeah. deal. Just, just terrible people but that's really what the film is is telling on the big farm because big pharma you can go in so many different directions sure. yeah fair enough absolutely um, but yeah it's very much focused on that pharma doctor relationship yeah, absolutely and um, and to your point with emily blunt it's being on rails is a great way to put it yeah when you want you want the film to be a chaotic film yeah you want it to move almost at a weird pace or mm-hmm. let the characters run a little bit wild yeah because when chris evans is running wild it's like geez, no he's <laughs> yeah. not, not doing it <laughs> right right yeah there's even a scene like he just does like a line of coke out of nowhere of like in like the back room i was just like we didn't establish he has a coke habit he just does it now like uh, i on that note i really hate to say it but post mcu chris evans disappoints yet again here um that floppy accent work uh the sales bravado it brings nothing original to the character you know i'll maybe give a slight credit or um you know a slight praise to the authenticity of a of, of how that sales floor feels and how this character specifically is always bending the rules misguided by growth but um i have yet to see evans take on a role that shows range you know maybe something like snowpiercer not even saying it's a huge role for him but uh he's fallen completely backwards into his pre-MCU experience of just average dickhead in, in these roles. Yeah, I, yeah. When you make the comment of post-MCU Chris Evans, it's just like, was he good at pre- was, was pre-MCU Chris <laughs> Evans good? Well, I guess, I, I mean, I, I go back to Snowpiercer that I was like, I, I said to myself, wow, he's trying to do something different than, you know, in the midst of like the Captain America vibes. Pre that, though, he's right. just always been a dickhead. We look at Gray Man. We look at this. He's just back in that dickhead role. Oh God, I, I, I wanted, forgot about I wanted the Gray progr- Man. Yeah. yeah, I wanted progression to him. I don't think uh, we're gonna get it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Either. Not impressed by him. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm definitely trying to trying to give him a shot, but yeah, this is not looking good. Uh, His accent was bad. Yeah, it's just bad. It's all over the place. <laughs> right. That's about all my thoughts, though. I feel the movie fumbles uh, what is a dynamite premise. Grifters in the opioid crisis is something that sounds perfect for a movie and even sounds exciting to be on streaming where potentially it could punch even harder without any concerns of, you know, how many people are actually filling seats. Um, But when the priorities of the story shift to more personal matters... The film loses mostly everything it has built up for itself. Its style is purely surface level, and to deliver a generic redemption arc that, once again, I just don't find was worth the time watching, we're going to go ahead and give Pain Hustlers a 37. Wow, 37? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) More than acceptable. Yeah. I'll tell you right now, I don't have a Tommy Two Shoes for this. I I don't care much (laughs) at all about this film. I like that simultaneously for Tommy Two Shoes, no shoes and then 
<laughs> no <laughs> shoes conceptually are right, two right. separate. <laughs> um, <laughs> like shoes haven't existed. Very <laughs> good, Finn. It's so true. It's so true. <laughs> um, the 30s, I just didn't care enough. I got done watching it, and I was just like, oh, okay, all right. I mean, it's just the entire movie. It's just... yeah. Same feeling, never stopped. Yeah, right. For the first 10 minutes to the last 10 minutes, right. same exact feeling the entire time. Absolutely. Um, so much so that I, I went back and I double-checked my Reptile review. Um, oh, yeah. Just because this hit on such a, oh, yeah, Netflix is at it again kind of uh, vibe for me that mm-hmm. I just I needed to make sure that this was below Reptile because Reptile honestly wipes the floor with this movie. <laughs> <laughs> as he far wasn't as like, hyped on reptile. Of right, yeah. <laughs> Just to let you know. I wasn't really into reptile either, but yeah. Okay, all right. So that is <laughs> that's uh all right, thirty seven percent for pain hustlers. Now let's keep it going. We're gonna do we'll save Marty for last, yes. Ah, it's, Even it's, came out. Okay. it's, it's the Colossus. <laughs> We're gonna jump to our good friend uh Andrew Blum. What's his name? <laughs> I, I forget. Patrick Blum. Patrick uh Five Nights at Freddy's based on a video game. Uh, kind of Blumhouse Productions picked yep. this up a little bit. We discussed in the beginning that this is the most successful opening weekend Blumhouse has had. Uh, yeah, period. People who are familiar with the podcast, friends of the show, will know uh, the term Blumhouse schlock. <laughs> it's used often in almost every single Blumhouse film. And I've had to resist <laughs> using that phrase uh, so much in this review. <laughs> so, okay, let's get into it. Five Nights at Freddy's. Does it break the mold? How was it, Vin? Uh, well, yeah, it, it, it is a kind of a different beast entirely for a lot of reasons um blumhouse is here to capitalize on one of the biggest internet phenomena in the last 10 years and i really do mean one of the biggest folks for those of you not terminally online you might not be aware just how popular five nights at freddy's is uh, yeah it's, i was like oh, I don't know. what the hell is this <laughs> this, this kitty horror game yeah <laughs> Uh, the game is a horror game series where you mainly check cameras to keep track of bloodthirsty animatronics in like this nightmarish Chuck E. Cheese. Basically, takes that like puppeteering thing. It, it, what if it was evil? You know, okay. almost like a almost like a Chucky vibe. You know, toy but creepy. These animatronics quickly become possessed horror ma- mascots for the game, with fans attaching to their favorite hellish contraption. And like most horror games on the internet, folks, it was supercharged by streamers, YouTube Let's Plays, and popularity going through the roof. Mm. Unlike any other horror game online in the last 10 years, Freddy is a whole different beast, capturing a much larger audience by drip-feeding its larger story and creating a fanaticism online. And I really do mean fanatical. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And is it cross ages too? There's, uh, like, there's a little kiddiness to this. Uh, absolutely. Okay, and right. I would say that's that's where this movie succeeds in understanding its demographic. This is not for anyone but the 10 year old that is obsessed with Five Nights at Freddy's. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah, so it goes absolutely. that young. Yeah. Oh, uh, okay. I think I think it's, uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I can't say why uh, Freddy's is so, so popular with kids, but it just, it just captures it. it okay. Just, uh, I think it's, it's, Probably a cross-section between the reaction type of things. Uh, you know, again, any kind of horror game really goes supercharged online. Right. People want to see people scared and Just whatnot. what it is now. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> so it was a cheap game. They pumped them out. And again, to this fanatical nature, folks, uh, uh, it, it was enough to skyrocket the career of Scott Cawthon uh, is the creator of the game and many leeching content creators of this brand. And I think it connects to how... 
this story was kind of drip fed to the to the fans of the series okay. to keep them along game after game and whatnot. Uh, mostly in a younger demographic as well, uh, which has proven to be a massive success point here in the movie's PG-13 rating, producing Blumhouse's biggest opening weekend ever. Do we have the updated box office? I know it was like 78 on the newsletter, I think. Yeah, oh, so what it done in the past couple days? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I'll look that up for you real quick. I mean, it, you know, consider, folks, that this was simultaneously streamed on Peacock as well. It was? Yeah. On the opening weekend, and it had this big of a theatrical release. I mean, that is that is the beginning of how to grasp how popular Freddy's is. Okay, that's a very good way to say it. Yeah. So it's at uh, it's at ninety million right now. Uh, I mean, and what twenty million? Seventy eight. Yeah, yeah so it made seventy eight over the weekend. Absolutely. That's surpri- uh, two things. No, no doubt that the love for the game is what's spawning all of that. Mm, sure. I think it's also a thing of, in fact, around this ho- whole Halloween, these past three weeks, mm-hmm. where those movies would usually hit, we haven't had too much actually. Actually, you know True. what I mean? Like yeah, the yeah. Halloween weekend, we had Killers, Killers of the Flower Moon that came out. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Taylor Swift. These yeah, are everyone's not, scared of Swift. These are not <laughs> Halloween movies, right? Yeah. So this is also, I think, scratching an itch yeah. for people who were just in that genre this month. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but definitely the fanfare. I mean, uh, from audience scores to critics, I mean, Rotten Tomatoes and not some other sites, <laughs> yeah. talk about a split. Oh, yeah. Uh, so Absolutely. it's good that we're covering this. Absolutely. But it's doing great for Blumhouse. Yeah. Uh, as far as the setup here, Five Nights at Freddy's, the movie takes a retro 80s, 90s setting, uh, mainly an arcade pizza pack. Atlas, again, a la Chuck E. Cheese or whatever your uh, regional flavor of that is. I know I, in the Midwest they have a different that's not Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, degrades it into a rotting home for puppet characters inside. Uh, we follow Joss Hutchinson uh, playing a desperate older brother looking to keep custody of his kid sister. And we'll do anything, including a nightmarish job in Freddy Fazbear's Pizza. Uh, the pizzeria has been linked to missing children, and we discover our main character also has some trauma in his past that strikes a similar nerve. Little do we know, uh, the sister he takes this creepy job for might be the link to be to finding out what's wrong at Freddy Fazbear's Pizza. I'm so tired of saying Freddy Fazbear's Pizza <laughs> or Five Nights at Freddy's. It's too much. Folks, in this game, it is about jump scares. It's exclusively jump scares. Okay. So I expected a shit ton of jump scares in a Blumhouse movie. So I, I kind of I kind of was going into it. But shockingly, the movie holds its punches for a good 40 minutes while it builds some tension elsewhere. At no point... In the praise that I may give this film, am I saying it is the best thing ever? But you have to understand with things like Smile, things like Megan, things like uh, Exorcist Believer, yeah. you know, it, it's kind of anywhere but up in right. a lot of scenarios here. Um, uh, the script, I think, succeeds in giving a deeper narrative to the missing children cases right away, something that was only sprinkled across the games, from my understanding. And while this understory was certainly key to the fanaticism and this kind of drip-fed aspect earlier to the success of this brand, uh, this being a movie needed something more to go off of. Um, Shifting the focus to being more about these children changes the story significantly and makes it more of a mystery than a scares-per-minute version, you know, as, as in its video game counterpart. Yeah. It's more of a kind of a mystery unfolding of where are these missing children going? How does it relate to the pizzeria versus just constant jump scares like it is in its video game mm-hmm. version? Actually so. building up a story a little bit. Right. <laughs> Unexpected. Uh, <yeah. laughs> wow. 
uh, you know, is is that accomplishing anything stellar? No, you got to understand this is uh, high praise for a Blumhouse film, yeah. and I think the movie does achieve some interesting things. So, if I'm being honest, a lot peppers the movie with negative marks for me. The script and acting usually produces all the bad spots. Um, there's like this, in, I want to say intentional. Mm-hmm. I want to say intended for comedy, but characters are very unhinged. It could just be seen as bad acting. I kind of think it's just bad acting. Oh. It could be a little tongue-in-cheek. Uh, and it could be unhinged? a little... Com- what do you mean unhinged? Uh, just- everyone just talks like a psychopath in this. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. Everyone talks like they're an American psycho or something like gotcha, that. Gotcha, right. and, and I think part of that could be there. <laughs> uh, this production team, uh, Scott Coffin, uh, the creator of the games, is in this in the writing credit as Big well. Time. So maybe yeah. it's uh, his own flair. I don't know. I don't know. But mostly everyone is really bad in this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Except for maybe Matthew Leonard. Um, who uh, slightly strikes uh, a balance of creepy and bad. Also, there's a lot of online love for him coming back as um, those uh, the old live-action Scooby-Doo films are pretty revered now. Uh, <laughs> oh, he plays... Uh, yeah. Oh, Scoob! Yeah, 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 what, yeah, yeah. what the hell is that character's Shaggy, name? Shaggy, Shaggy. yeah. Come on. <laughs> so, yeah, so him coming... I don't know. It's it's a little bit of a viral uh, choice. a Lillard re- renaissance, are we? <laughs> Unbelievable. (laughs) Unbelievable is right. Uh, Surprisingly, though, the whole production feels almost a little 90s, which I I think is where the movie, believe it or not, pays off a little bit. We get some splashes of comedy that feel out of place, but really does suit the preteen audience this is going after. There's a sequence with the sister character that really nails this home that, if anything, for a brief moment in the story, we switch entirely from horror, even more to like a Disney vibe. Which is That's not good. You don't want that. Not good, but I think uh, appropriate for what this movie is going after. Yeah, more than anything, this feeling comes from the animatronics being real puppets they made for the movie rather than using CGI. You know, I, I don't think it looks great. I really don't think it looks okay, great, all right. especially with how the lighting works on the the the, the light velvet or fur of the puppets. Uh-huh. You know, I don't think they look great in really any scene, but it does add something to this entry-level horror vibes the movie has going on. Uh, again, I could not get it out of my head that this feels like a Blumhouse joint if they did it for D- Disney+. Plus. There is a huh. beginner horror vibe. There is a gateway drug horror vibe here uh, going on, okay. which I, again, not my bag. Uh, was it better than when they had the same PG-13 rating in another Blumhouse film and still hold back the kills? He'll still hold right. back the gold? Gore? There's really no difference here. Here, at least, it looks intentional uh, where it's dipping into maybe some campiness. Okay. Maybe some cor- uh, you know some corniness to it. Uh, and, and would you take your ten-year-old to go see? Th- I'm trying to figure out the range here of the film. I think would you take a ten-year-old to see this? I think to the point of the the variance we see online between critics and and fans. Yeah. I think any fan of uh, of a Five Nights Freddy brand uh, would love Could, this. And then, like handle it. I mean, like it, it's not overly oh, scary yeah. and things yeah. like that. Is this, is this just like a slightly spooky night at the museum? 
Uh, that's that's an interesting comparison and, and pretty pretty good. You, okay. you whipped that out of winter. Is it my head by head the entire time? Yeah, I mean, a little bit because yeah. it's it's like uh, well these things aren't moving now they're moving and and as far as like gore and kills, I really do think this this strikes maybe not PG but definitely below the PG thirteen rating. Oh okay, gotcha. Um, I'm trying uh, to just put a finger on it, you know. Yeah, I know it, it's tough, uh, especially with how successful it is, how like amazingly <laughs> successful it is. So, but. I, I think uh, somewhere in the middle of that, a Blumhouse for Disney or a, a creepy night at the museum, mm-hmm. uh, that, that's somewhere where this exists. Okay. And so, and, and folks, that's where I feel this does a half-decent job at kind of understanding the balance of being a preteen horror experience and also being a little bit of a shameless fan service film. Uh, once again, all the evidence you need to see is in that PG-13 rating and the massive box office success. We're going to go ahead and give Five Nights at Freddy's a 50 on the dot. Wow. <laughs> okay. I don't know. There's something poetic about it. I mean, really, when I say folks, I mean, it is split online. It is split. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. And- At most, I could probably give this like a 52 or something like that, but I feel like the 50, it's it's one of those it rare cases that it illustrates it perfectly. Wow. Wow. Yeah, we've only had like three of them. Yeah, yeah. Three or four of them. That's in, a, it's, a, it's a special slot. Yeah. <laughs> 50% for Friday Night's Fe- Freddy's. Okay. I mean, which is, uh, 50s is a bad score, but at the same time, it's also, we kind of call it a coin flip. Yeah. Because um, just for some people, it will hit. For some people, it will not. But also... Yeah, you liked half of it, and you did not like half of yeah, it. Yeah, and, and and more importantly, that fifty is is supporting a feeling that I had watching the film that said this kind of is better than the average Blumhouse slot. I was gonna say if you do the Blumhouse bell curve, <laughs> <laughs> this movie's doing all right. It's doing all right. It's right <laughs> at the bell. <laughs> yeah, but there there was something there that like I I really thought back to Megan a lot. Whether it be Megan, like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know the animatronics or like a toy aspect of it. Um, and again, similar Chucky vibes that toy equals creepy. Right. When it when it comes down to it, I was just like this. I don't. This has more going on for it than than everything I can think of come to memory. I, I, especially like okay. Megan. Okay, all right. Fifty percent, but a positive fifty percent kind right. of a surprise in a way. Yeah, definitely a surprise. You know, you see Blumhouse, you do it for the thirties or forties. Shooting high for Blumhouse. <laughs> all right, folks, let's just get to it right away now. So sit down, make sure you go to the bathroom. <laughs> Um, Actually, that's a great way to kick it off. Did you go pee during this movie? No, I did not. No, I know. Wow. I know. For people who know me, you'd be shocked. I mean, that's <laughs> that's the biggest news on the podcast. That's I, I didn't big... have to pee. I was, and so much so, I didn't have to go so much that I wasn't even thinking through half the film. Do I go now? Is something going to happen now? Can oh, I go good. It's Killers of the Flower Moon. It's more, this is how we open this movie. Yeah. Did you go pee? Killers of the Flower Moon. Martin Scorsese. It's three hours and 26 minutes long. It's rated R. We have a big cast. A different kind of movie um, for, for Marty, I would say. Uh, let's get into it right away. Mm. We'll ping pong back and forth. Vin, how did you like Killers of the Flower Moon? Well, uh, I'm very happy to say that, uh, again, when, when I first came across this movie, and trailers and whatnot, and uh, there was a 
a gratitude that I get to review a movie from Scorsese, uh, but there was an immediate fear. <laughs> we shared a, it. We both talked about it on the podcast, yeah, too. Yeah, there was a panic uh, that, that I had and kind of saying, you know, Jesus Christ, I have to actually have to review this. And allow me to say, folks, I, you know, I talk a lot of shit on movies, uh, sometimes because I love a movie, sometimes because I love and expect more from the director. Uh, but let's get it straight. You know, my words are nothing compared to the art and effort put into any film, and that goes double for Marty. Luckily, here I have the easy job of saying I, I really did love this movie. I didn't. I don't feel like I need wow. to drag it through the mud like I would probably want to do and have to do for the Irishman uh, if that came out during the podcast or anything like right, that. Right, right. Um, so just know it's all love. Uh, you know, any, any any slight at this movie, the amount of consideration that is put into this film is tenfold of any movie that has come out this year. I, I, I agree with that. Yeah. Uh, and, and while... Uh, with the exception of, a say, Oppenheimer. Uh, sure, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. That is the, the big arms race here. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm curious to, to hear, you know, which side uh, you fall on. Is it Oppenheimer or killers so uh, you know while I was concerned I would have issues with this movie uh, I'm really happy to say that it really doesn't disappoint Killer of the Flower Moons Killers of the Flower Moon is I would say one of the strongest of the year it has an aspect that it runs so long is it fair to even compare to other films yes uh, every film had this type of runway sure there's plenty of dramatic arcs can you know be fleshed out and whatnot but I do think it is one of the strongest of, of the year then yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. It's it's going to be in the running for sure. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say – I don't think you have to put it in its own category for the time. Okay. We could talk about that right away as far as just the time and kind of get those <laughs> – Right. Okay. I was shocked uh-huh. when the movie ended. I was shocked with how okay I was with the time. Mm, yeah. I, can't, I walked away from it, and I was just like – I mean, in three and a half hours, could you cut stuff? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Obviously. I wasn't angry at any scene being too long. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sitting there saying this needs to end, this needs to end. It right. was really a movie that takes you on a journey, yeah. tells a story, and by the end of it, I was so okay. I was shocked with how okay it was with three hours and, tw- sure. three hours and 26. Yep. Uh, Andrea thought the exact same thing. We yep. both were just like, totally fine with yeah, that. When we were up. dreading it at first. I know you were dreading mean, oh, yeah. it. It's just like, oh boy, here we four hours at the movie. Yeah. So I just I'll, remember my experience with with the Irishman that it just destroyed my Thanksgiving that year in 2019. <laughs> um, well, I, I still like the Irishman. I, it, we'll go. I can't wait to review that on the podcast because right, right, we'll yeah. go head to head on that one. <laughs> um, but I'll just say that right off the bat that I was more than okay. Yeah. With the three hours and twenty six six minutes, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you heard the news lately that there was a lot of theaters taking it upon themselves to insert an intermission when, oh, they feel, really? when they feel like it. Marty's not happy about it. The oh, team not, is not wow. happy about it because the story is meant to be told how it's told. Sure. And breaking it up, uh, you know, for a full intermission type thing, it, mm. it's a weird thing for a theater to take it upon themselves to do that. Yeah, um, yeah. I didn't have that in mind, but really, folks, it's not that it's an unbelievably fast-paced movie, mm. but it's paced so well where you were along for the ride and – as far as I'm concerned, totally okay with it. Yeah, yeah. And different than like just a bunch of or like binging four hours of a TV show. I think it's oh, different. Uh, it very much is deserved of being a movie. It is its own piece. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where I, I think my only comparison would be like the Snyder Cut for Justice League or even that re-edit of Hateful Eight for Tarantino. Uh, uh, there are... 
those feel like just kind of um, TV or streamable type of content where mm -hmm. this was very clearly just a movie, uh, which is good and, yeah. and, and deserving of that. So I'll say this. I like the long run time of The Irishman as well. <laughs> <laughs> the head to head. See, I'm the one that gets hurt though, because I have to shit on one of my favorite directors by doing the Irishman. So I, I never want to do the Irishman. Oh yeah, um, I think what impresses me most about, uh, most of all, about this film is its production. Uh, I'm a big fan of CBS Sunday Morning. They had some great coverage uh, on the authenticity of this film mm -hmm. and making it. Mainly steps that were taken to tell the story with respect to the Osage Nation, uh, including extensive casting decisions and constant fact-checking of the true story. But not once does this film blare in your face its non-fiction roots. The power comes from a feeling of realism. Unlike pain, uh, unlike uh, pain hustlers, where it's just like true story, true story. Can you believe this happened? Mm -hmm. You know, this is just—it's kind of confident in its realism. Yeah. I think this pays off a lot with Lily Gladstone playing our female lead Molly, alongside with pretty much any of the language work done in the film. Uh, that is going to lead me to my biggest praise. I think one of the most notable aspects here is Robert De Niro learning the full Osage language uh, and might be an all-time performance for him. Okay. I Oh, wow, wow. <laughs> what do you mean he learned the whole language? Uh, I mean, he's speaking that pretty fluently. He's, he sounds, he doesn't sound even like a, <laughs> he's, he's sounding Osage. <laughs> I wanted to laugh. I wanted to laugh. As soon as he's pretty early in the movie, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, they, they bring it out right away. Yep, yep. And when he's doing it, he's kind of like whispering it to somebody. <laughs> yeah. I, I wanted to laugh, honestly. Right. I, it wasn't impressed. It, I wasn't impressed. Throughout the film, then, it's just like, he did learn, and he learned the dialect a little <laughs> right. bit. It was kind of impressive. Where, like, Leo is always whispering it. Like, he didn't yeah, have that down. I, I, De Niro is, is, he's orating, you know, he's, 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 he's giving speeches. I was not, I, think, I think that's worth some praise. Okay, all right. Sure. Yes. No, for sure. <laughs> it's worth some praise. There's this other scene, he's talking over somebody and kind of saying a prayer for somebody yeah, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, Again, yeah. just kind of wanted to laugh, was smiling. <laughs> really? Yeah, I wasn't saying they okay. being like, wow, he's really, I'm impressed by this. Fair enough. Fair um, enough. I'm not, I liked his performance. Okay. Uh, I wasn't blown away by his performance. Really? Yeah, I really and I, I oh, yeah, wow. I really feel that way. Okay, okay. I think that's I think that's surprising just because I feel like his menacingness in this film was so realistic. Um so, did, did you like him as a villain, essentially? He yes. Is, he is the antagonist. Yes, okay. Here. I liked him as a villain. L let me just say this. Sure. And I can kind of almost say the same thing for Leo as well. Mm. Very much how we were talking about being on the rails or having to be on rails. His runway to act was very much on rails. And mm. I don't say that in a bad way. Mm -hmm. I'm saying he's just playing a very certain character. Yep. And he's not given the chance to have range. Because yep. that's not his job. Sure. His job is to be this one guy in this one way. Mm -hmm. And he was very much this one guy in the very same one way. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a little bit one note, but not his fault. There's rails on the character. Mm. He stayed within the rails, but he did a very good job at being the character. Sure, sure. So I liked him on screen. I enjoyed seeing him. I liked him with Leo or with anybody. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. it was very difficult to me. I wasn't having that. Damn, I wasn't having that. Like, look at De Niro go right now. Look, he's right. acting his ass off. Yeah, not once did I really, really? feel that. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. But interesting. I think he's strapped, and Leo was strapped with just having to be the characters that they needed to be. Yeah, I think what hits it for me with De Niro and where I, I, I don't know if I said like, damn, this is this is really really great, De Niro. Right. Um, I do think it is. It conjures similar aspects of what I love in his top roles. Max Cady in Cape Fear, um, sure. uh, Conway in Goodfellas. It's the subtle manipulation that we're never really recognizing and saying, oh, that's the bad guy. It's just that in the way he talks, he's constantly working an angle. And I feel like yeah. this character of Hale uh, was able to to capture those good elements in those uh, you know top-tier De Niro okay, performances. Okay, sure, all right. Um, and, and at least in... in in just the surface level, I enjoyed him being the antagonist. I enjoyed him being the villain okay. of it. Yeah. You know, I, I like De Niro as a villain. <laughs> I like villains. <laughs> I know, in, period. So, I also think just because of this language work, despite I, I think it's a good perspective that you you brought up that it was maybe a little cartoonish. Would was that safe to say? Uh, or, or what? How would you like to put? This making you laugh aspect. Because it's just De Niro, because De Niro has almost become a meme of himself. Okay. For the past 20 years, yep. he's had his other revenues of money, you know what I mean? And almost <laughs> taking up roles so he could pay for his restaurants and this and that. Like, we haven't, like, De Niro was one of, oftentimes considered the best actor sure. for, like, decades. Yeah, yeah. Like, over two decades. Yeah. And... I didn't grow up with that De Niro. Mm. I grew up with De Niro with, like I said, was almost a meme of himself. Mm. And you could almost starting with like meet, meet the parents, the parents and, analyze this. And so now you see this. It's it's a big time movie because it's not just a massive film and the story. And you know, it's Leo and him together finally on film mm. together. Mm-hmm. He wasn't. I don't know. I just him breaking out in Osage language. <laughs> It, it made you laugh. It made me laugh because I wasn't <laughs> seeing the character do it. I was seeing Robert De Niro do it. Fair enough. You know fair what enough. I mean? And again, and, and I don't want to, it's going to sound like I'm shitting, I'm going to be shitting on this movie a little bit. <laughs> I might be a little bit in ways, but in no way am I saying the performances are bad or they could have really done much better. Right, that's exactly how I opened it up. I mean, yeah. it, it, it comes from love. It comes from uh, that the, the potential of this film yes. is massive, maybe even greater than itself. And it's just, yes. And I'll just, not to keep on repeating myself, because I can say this across the board with a lot of things with this film, mm-hmm. but these two main actors in general, the character is on rails, so that ne- therefore they had to be. Yeah. Take The Revenant, which mm-hmm. is one of my favorite movies. Sure. A lot of people say Leo got the Oscar for that performance when he should have got it for Wolf of Wall Street. Because mm. The Revenant, he's not doing too much, because oftentimes his throat is like slit and he can't even talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So that character is hindered by the ability where the character is just hindered. Mm, yeah, yeah. And he can, and Leo can only be so Leo in it. Sure. I feel the same way in this film. Interesting. About both these characters. Interesting. I guess my last note with De Niro before moving on is do you think, maybe even in that same thing of, uh, oh, we're just going to give it to Leo because he's earned it, do you think this is a late era Oscar win for best supporting in, in De Niro's favor? Um, yes. No way. Okay. Uh, for multiple reasons. From the language angle to... I'd say three reasons. Yeah? Yeah. One, because it's Robert De Niro. Sure. Two, because of the length of time on screen. Mm. He is such a supporting cast. And oftentimes yeah. when it comes to Oscars, the people who have a serious big supporting cast role, mm-hmm. uh, you're already thrown into the into the probable yeah. uh, bin. You yeah. know what I mean? 
there's oftentimes he's in it so much you could say it's shared big time between him and Leo. Absolutely. So that's two. Three, it's because, like I said, his performance is quite good at the character mm-hmm. he's playing. Um, and with the language, with the with just the story it is and the heaviness of it, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. he's uh, automatically a contender and I would say probably in top spot. I think that's a great point with the time on screen. This isn't like a Silence of the Lambs, you know, uh, Hopkins getting it for like you know, a couple minutes. Correct. You know I mean? Uh, we talked about it once before, but in his, um, oh man, in the uh, Kevin Costner, uh, Sean Connery film. Oh, he uh, plays, he, uh, Untouch- Untouchables. He's in it like barely. He's in like five scenes, four oh, scenes. Oh, yeah, yeah. De Niro playing Capone, yeah. But did he, he, I think he was nominated for I that. I think he was, uh, going back to it. It is good, but right, it's that's what one saying. of those classic it, it's, cases. And in one of those few cases where you only have four seasons yeah. and people are oh, talking about you and it's you're just, getting Oscar buzz. Yeah. With this, he's naturally going to get Oscar buzz yeah. because, man, when you're in it that long, you look at Kihei Kwan mm. in... Um, Everything everywhere, sure. all at once. Mm-hmm. He won the Oscar, and he deserves it all the way because there's at times he's almost the, the main lead. Character. Yeah, he's absolutely. Almost the lead. Absolutely, uh, that's a big factor. Yeah, that, that's a great point. Great point. Uh, but that's where I was coming into, at least with my praise for De Niro. Um, I, I think that's great, though. That, <laughs> that it got a it got a laugh out of you uh, because I, sometimes I, can certainly, I feel like I can certainly see it. I I, I know the cartoonish aspect of yeah, it. it. Yeah, look, this is gonna be a long review. Clearly, we're summary. I know, I know, but to continue on to near just a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just because I'll finish just my last thing. Is, right. it's. He was known for being the biggest character actor. Mm. You go back to when he did, um, when he plays a psychopath oh, uh, in uh, Cape Fear. Uh, Cape Fear, yeah. The amount of research he did into mm. the dialect and everything like that. Yes. The research he did for so many of his films back then. He was relentless mm. at doing prep for the film. Mm-hmm. The moment he broke out in that language, the reason why is because for 20 years, I have seen De Niro just rolling through a film. <laughs> And just being like, I'm De Niro, I know what I'm doing here. Right. You heard about like him, Leo was being really persistent with working with each line. Oh, yeah. And they they both, him and Marty, De Niro and Marty were getting pissed at Leo because Leo was just taking it too far. One to change the script, one to change it. And De Niro was getting pissed and rolling his eyes constantly. (laughs) Um, You know, not that he was phoning it in, but I just can't help that he gives off that vibe to me sometimes. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely get what you mean. I, I think just where the character, I was in love with it, and I, I really, I mean it, I think it was my favorite part of the movie. Mm-hmm. The production is close, uh, but that's just a, a big thing. But as far as like an individual role, it's just that the manipulation that happens with mm-hmm. him as the antagonist, it's 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 Jimmy Conway in the last half of Goodfellas. It is Max Cady and how menacing he is without even touching anyone. And I feel like in this mm-hmm. like schemey turn of the century, captain of industry, Mason, you know, businessman that his character is Hales. It just it was it was a villain in yet a new way that still had those aspects of what okay. I love about his villains, you know. And I love that. I love yeah. that. Yeah. But yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the tangents of tangents. Uh, where where do we go from here? Uh, uh, this this authenticity once again, I think it pays off in setting the film in this kind of untouched uh, 1920s Oklahoma. This uh, has a a unique feel to its setting, but for how much we get to understand about the Osage Nation and the focus uh, being on the town, uh, I would say the main mover of the story is on romance between Ernest and Molly. Uh, Leo plays Ernest here, and over a huge runtime, we see him dip in and out of a facade within this town. To Molly, he is a loving husband, 
To his Uncle Hale, he is a loyal dog. And alone, he is entirely something else. And a little bit, you know, unleashed in that regard. Mm -hmm. Their romance is strained from the very beginning, with twisted motivations of inheriting the Osage land. But when a string of countless murders begin... It begs the question of everyone's true intentions. And this type of drama, this type of, not conspiracy, but um, kind of looking over your shoulder is the main through line of the plot to Killers of the Flower Moon. I think my note here is this is where the runtime is justified. This is where uh, I f was fully comfortable with it being three hours, 26 uh, you know, uh, my fear was that I thought this was going to be like, you know, Irishman in 2019, where the runtime kind of cripples some of the punch of the film. Mm -hmm. But I think uh, the good news is that it, it feels justified for me. Uh, we unpack the drama of so many interlocking relationships around town, within the tribe, and that runtime enriches the experience, like maybe a show. But again, this feels distinctly like a movie and deserve it of just being a movie rather than a broke up episodic thing just mm -hmm. being played back to back or binge style. Or yeah, like absolutely. That. The heart and the emotion that's felt in the film and what's conveyed to the audience yeah. is so deep, you need the time to sink into the environment, yeah. which, which Marty and they just set up so, so mm -hmm. well. Yeah. Uh, it really is just a beautiful single piece to tell this entire story. Yeah. To rush, sure, anyone could come in and probably make a two-hour and 15-minute movie. Mm -hmm. It would be rushed, and that depth wouldn't be felt at all. Yeah. We yeah. really feel like we have been told this story mm -hmm. in a true, earnest, proper way. Yeah. And like you said, it's justified. Yeah. I'm glad that we both felt that coming away from it. It's even in the setting. You know, this is such a blend. It's 1920s, but it also feels distinctly like late West a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Um, the development is all over. They have a, a you know shit ton of money because of the oil mm -hmm. connected to land, but at the same time as well, it is still uh, poverish and lawless in ways yep. like a West would feel, or a dying West would feel. Uh, and I just feel like our, our takeaway from the setting couldn't be done with uh, lesser runtime. You know, the slow decline of the tribe requires to unfold uh, gradually, gradually, and um, each killing builds a gravity that lingers the whole movie. It really doesn't go away. And I think that's driven home, if you do watch this, uh, folks, uh, it's important you see the beginning because I feel like it sets the tone uh, as uh, some narration from mm. Molly uh, goes through and kind of... Not gives away the film, but lets you know that there's a building list of murders that we need to not forget about right. um, because they are very much intended to be forgotten about. Mm -hmm. So I would say it's heartwarming to find out that this soundtrack was done by the great Robbie Robertson, who passed away this year. Uh, a longtime friend of Marty going back to 1978's classic, The Last Waltz. Uh, and I would say the music choice is third in line for what I loved about this film. You know, Marty somehow makes blues span across a whole spectrum of moods to fit exactly how he needs them. Uh, again, this 1920s, so like folk and marching songs are used in more upbeat parts to give energy when needed. I mean, I feel like Marty has accomplished something with pairing, and Robertson, with pairing his music like he would in a Goodfellas, mm -hmm. like he would in a Wolf of Wall Street, but in this older time period, which... 
is not a factor that I felt with like Gangs of New York or other type of period pieces that Marty has done. And I just just hats off to it. I thought this was a phenomenal soundtrack. Okay. Yeah. What do you think about? I mean, you're the blues man. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think about it? Um, it was one of the biggest disappointments I Whoa! felt was the film. Whoa! In the film, um, and it could have been partially I was looking forward to it too much. Oh, okay. Um, I knew this was Robbie Robertson. I knew okay. this was the last film he did. Uh-huh. Uh, for those of you who don't know, just like Robbie Robertson and the band, he is such an integral part to Martin Scorsese for all of his films going back to the mid seventies. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if he's not credited in the music department, or if he's not credited in as the main music done by or yeah, something yeah. like that mm-hmm. oftentimes he was still always with marty marty would always run things by him yep and officially he was on around 10 or a dozen films mm. officially of where he gets the credit for it kind of mm. not only is it special because robbie died this year yes he did work on the movie entirely like it was all him oh good okay but also it's very uh it was very touching and meaningful for Robertson to be a part of this and to do this film, mm. which I know that Marty was aware of, but he grew up on a reservation. His mom mm. was, I think, until like nine or something like that. Robbie's mom was from a Canadian uh, Native American tribe, yeah, I believe. because all the band is Canadian, right? Or, or yes. most of them. Yeah. Yes, that's right. So, and I forget what um, I forget what tribe it was with, but uh, very in tune later in like the aughts, in the 2000 aughts kind mm-hmm. of, he formed another band and they did some like tribal music. Oh, wow. Tribal-based stuff. Okay. So, very meaningful to Robbie. Yeah. I was expecting more. I was expecting to be more present. Oftentimes, it's just droning in the background. And Mm. I don't mean droning as a really bad thing, but it's quiet, it's slow, Mm. and because it's a long film, I was naturally expecting it to the music to help it move in a certain way. You Mm. felt that? I mean, you just said that you had (laughs) kind of felt that. I wasn't crazy impressed with it. And honestly, one of the main things that I would say about Kill the Irishman Mm -hmm is the same thing. Robbie did that music as well. Really? And I felt that soundtrack to be lackluster. Yeah. And again, kind of background music. Mm. And there, oftentimes, it's not, you know, it's a pretty quiet movie. Mm-hmm. It's Killers of the Flower Moon. Mm-hmm. I was expecting a little bit more punch and something that I could, something I could feel. Something mm. when I'm thinking about a scene or thinking back to this movie, I, I, I have that in the back of my head. That's sure. setting up, it helps set a mood a little bit. When you think of Nolan or watching Dunkirk or something like that, mm-hmm. even just the ticking of that watch yeah, is uh, the, very resonant with the film. I can You can feel it almost. Absolutely. It has a presence. Big time. Yeah. And with this film, I wasn't getting that. I mean, believe me, I was listening and when <laughs> it was something, you know, a constant little drum in the back or yeah, something yeah. like that. You know, it was there. It was present. Mm-hmm. You could tell that there was thought to it. I was expecting a more variety mm-hmm. of genre played and louder and quicker when I felt like it could have helped. Well, I think the lack of variety was what I was impressed with it. He uses blues in any type of scene. And, uh, you know... uh, I was expecting more Native American stuff. Really? Okay, okay. definitely. Interesting. And not that drums aren't used, they are used, but still, I was expecting more. I'm fine with the blues stuff, are they also Honestly, have like going man, up the country, like folk, folk, right. uh, you know, early folk stuff like that? Like I knew some of the tracks yeah, that yeah. he plucked from. And I thought I it was, was pretty good ex- deep cuts. And I was expecting more. I didn't think they wow, were deep cuts. Wow. <laughs> I'm more of a blues but, guy. But you are the blues aficionado. So I'm here, just yeah. like, all right, he's pulling that. All right. Okay, you know. <laughs> he's like, I listened to that three I, years ago. So uh, <laughs> very touching for everything around Robertson, what the band means yeah, to yeah. you and I personally. Yes, absolutely. But um, it's funny you say if it's on third of best for you, I, I would say third. Uh, uh, taking away <laughs> really from it wow, yeah wow wow i guess if anything again i want to stay away from the arms race of this versus our oppenheimer i guess in where with where with nolan it was such a loud movie <laughs> 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 and 
and again, even to the critics of Nolan, like he played right into it, like yeah. of what people hate about his movies, of the of the haters out there. I just felt like this this in combination with a fresh style story, and um, you know, Marty was just able to do something new, and I feel like he was able to do something new with his soundtrack rather than it just being like, oh, it's like Goodfellas, or it's like, oh, it's like any of the trends that Marty set. In his career. Yes. Um, I think you'd be shocked if you go back and watch um, Kill the Irishman again. Or Irishman. Or Irishman. Right. Kill the Irishman. Different movie. Um, <laughs> if you go back and watch The Irishman, yeah. um, you're going to find a lot of similarities. Really? I remember you complaining about The Irishman. Money down, I would have thought you had the same feeling about the music on interesting, this one for interesting. me. Interesting. Maybe, maybe that's, that is worth the, the rewatch. I then. was watching and walking away from it, too. I was... I. It needed a little Nolan-y to it. Mm. Not crazy loud. I didn't need crazy loud. No, 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 no. But pacing-wise, I was expecting more to fill kind of the gaps in Mm. or to punch. Yeah. I'll make one other reference. and Maybe people will get this, maybe not. Mm -hmm. But the Peaky Blinders Mm. on Netflix. Okay. A lot of talking scenes, a lot of dialogue, and then all of a sudden it's quickly broken up by like a Jack White or garage type band or something mm. like that. That's a little bit too much. Yeah. That's like trying too hard. Yeah, yeah, I don't need that. I didn't need it to be crazy loud or anything like that. Mm. And it also pulls for some of the music, kind of that 1920s era as well. Yes, yes. I just needed something more, invoke a little bit more feeling, help the mm. scene along. It's not just about loudness or anything like that. Right, right. It's about true depth and care in the musical choices themselves. I want it more, and that's why I say want it more from the Native American sure, stuff. Sure, sure. I was expecting a little bit more heart in that. I, you know, I think that's a very valid point because it, it, in every other ounce of the film, there is this hardcore consideration of the Osage, yeah. uh, this uh, respect given to to their thing, mm-hmm. to their to their culture, and, and maybe there is, that is a lacking element. Uh, even even take the trailer. Where, yeah. Where oh, right, right. They played a, a tribe called Red. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And not that I needed a tribe called Red no. in something like this film. Yeah. But I was like, that right away, I was like, oh, okay, all right, yeah. Robbie's going to go ham, like, yeah. you, you know. <laughs> yeah. But uh, that's that. Yeah. Well, I, then uh, enough with my top three. Let me, let me get to where I, I do have some gripes. Okay. And I feel like, sadly, the lacking element for me is Leo. Uh, I feel with him being the center of the story, it affects my feelings on the final act of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a little bit of how that final act is structured with so much runtime. You know, I, I think his performance-wise, it's 95% great. We still get the the yelly Leo, which... Uh, it's tame. As far as Leo freak outs. Right. Thinking about you the whole time of that scene. That's so funny. <laughs> I, just, I don't even know if we've even fleshed that out on the podcast, but I, I got some beef with, with Leo's uh, ace in the hole that he always pulls out, which is him cracking his voice screaming. Uh, I do not think it's acting. I think anyone one can do it. It's <laughs> so funny that I, that's a classic. Yeah, we're worried each other's heads. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, you know his acting ninety five percent good here. I think the character is robbed of a meaningful conclusion, and uh, it really just depends on how you see. Who is the lead here? Um, it really depends on how you see what is the purpose of the story. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, maybe not the correct answer, but I think the takeaway answer is that it is about the Osage. It is about the nation uh, of these people and what is what has been done to them. But Leo is so pronounced as an actor and as a character that the conclusion is uh, it's just a bit unsatisfying. Mm-hmm. I just feel like it kind of kind of slips at the end. Um, uh, one piece of this is the dramatic hit, the punch of the story, happens much earlier than the actual close of the film. So much so that I feel like the last hour of the plot 
it, it I don't want to say flounders, but the writing is on the wall for all of our characters in the last hour. Yeah. We know what's basically basically when Jesse Plemons gets introduced. Mm-hmm. I, I feel structuring in, in that way, again, I wasn't upset with the time. In a lesser film, I think I would definitely critique that of just saying that's wasted time and, and make the punch hit harder. For me, it, it really only affected Leo's character. At no point did I expect a bow tie ending, and nor did I want that. But mm-hmm. the very nature of the story is is so messy and so intentionally a little unsatisfying in its in its truth that I feel like man, uh, I, I wanted just a little bit something more concrete around uh, Ernest's relationship with Molly, yeah. especially with the movie. Again, you you can see this movie in a lot of different ways. The mover, the mover of the plot is the romance and, and is Leo's ambitions. So to feel that structure over three and a half hours uh, and feel that romance with Molly... Uh, I was just looking for more closure with Leo's character. I, you feel me there? I agree, and it could have been a five-minute scene. Not even. Yeah. It could have been a little bit something. And at the same time— It really comes down to that last interaction, yeah, too. But at the same time, it was so purposeful. Yeah. Because it wasn't—everything you said that the movie is about is about. Mm. However, really when it comes down to it, it is about the Osage people at this very specific time. Yeah. And it's about telling this story of this period. Yeah. And we just used— our host to tell that story was Leo. Mm, you know mm-hmm, what I mean? Mm-hmm. And kind of just a swiping him aside mm-hmm. and for the finishing of the story, uh, which I do love, you know, the last five minutes, I, I really like and the way mm, they, oh, they, sure, they, absolutely. they really bring it to a close. Absolutely. Especially that, that kind of break in reality yeah. that comes with it. Yeah. So it felt very intentional, but dissatisfying. Mm-hmm. But I walked away saying like, wow, that was such an incredible telling yep. of a true event that actually happened in history. But Absolutely. it's tough to walk away and say, unbelievable Leo performance. Because it's not the purpose. It's not the purpose, yeah. even though that's what it's about mostly. And even though it's top Weird. build characters right. and whatnot, yeah. there, there's a conflict there, I feel. But um, but yeah, that that's really my main gripe with it. And, and, and again how that affects structure, how that affects the last hour specifically, specifically how it affects uh, the role of Ernest. Uh, not really connected to the performances, yeah. though. It, it, uh, no, for sure. It's, mm-hmm. And it's hard. I was trying not to go back and be like, oh, what would I do different? Because it's so easy to... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I don't even know what's... Back, right. Backseat direct. Yeah, yeah. Armchair back, direct. Right, armchair yeah. direct. But it, it's... <clears throat> you know, it probably could have done it a little bit different, especially in that last hour because... That's almost should be Leo at the highlight, the unraveling of mm. Leo and trying to. That's ma- when we need the scream. Trying to maintain <laughs> and control it. It's you know falls flat a little bit. I would say. Yeah. You know, I don't want to keep on making excuses. Be like, well, maybe, that, but it it did. That's yeah. yeah. What's felt. And, and and that that was that was kind of my really only like uh, as far as uh, major critique. I feel like that's where I kind of landed with it. And again, uh, yeah, a, a little bit of a of a bias, a little bit of a hatchet I need to bury with Leo. <laughs> so just just to be honest, like I said, folks, this is a very strong entry for this year and uh, a year that already has some heavy hitters. Um, I'm actually very excited. Come Tom Daly's time, mm. very excited just to kind of look back on this year because even if something's not super strong. I feel like there's been a lot of uh, iconic movies, uh, a lot of movies that just kind of bring it home for their creators, and 
Killers of the Flower Moon kind of hits on so many levels. Um, trust me, this is not blind praise either for a veteran director making a big movie. Um, you know, I fully went in expecting to have a lot of problems with this connected to the runtime and was really left wanting to see more. The big question here is, uh, you know, how much is it really worth your time with that runtime? I think for me, it was very much worth it. I'm honestly excited to hear... Uh, from just just different perspectives on this, because um, while I feel like we've done a good job, Tom, at, at giving a balanced opinion, it's, uh, I don't know, I feel like there is some blind praise around this movie. Not saying that it needs hate in any way, but uh-huh. I feel like people are just kind of plugging in and saying, oh, it's Marty, it's it's good, you know? Yeah, the only uh, real the only real um, hate it's getting is the runtime. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, but I, I feel like what, what Marty has been able to do here with the Osage Nation, with this very unique setting of 1920s, not really industrial, but still West, and not only that, of course, a true story that doesn't throw it in your face and and deserves to be told. I feel like what Marty has done, this high praise, comes close to a Goodfellas in the sense that Marty was able to put a spotlight on the mafia culture of America, and Italian Americans, mm. and in a similar way, he's been able to spotlight something that probably a vast majority of people watching this film do not have experience with, do not have a background with, and is able to do justice by it to uh, place us front and center to what what we need to know about this time, this period, and um, uh, and and these people as well. Uh, with that said, we're gonna go ahead and give Killers of the Flower Moon. And 85. It makes Whoa! it. It makes it. Whoa! Yeah, it makes it. Big boy alert, Big then. boy. Yeah. 85%. Wow. I man. think, I think, uh. You didn't see it twice, did you? No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm already bringing my rule right. with that. 85%. Well, since it's two movies in one, I'll, I'll count it as, wow. <laughs> I'll count it as twice. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah, I, I think, um, again, it, it, where I stuck with it is that, uh, do I even have a, uh, a passing interest in the Osage Nation or anything like that? No, but this movie made me care in the way that I think mm. a Goodfellas makes you care about Italian-American mafia type of experience. It's, 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 it's a spotlight and doing it justice to the highest degree. Okay. So I feel as though the everything that you just spoke about too, mm-hmm. the to- the tone of the film, the heart and the consideration, mm. um, it's all there. It's all complete. It's, it's really felt. And it feels like an important film. Mm-hmm. I'm glad he made it. I'm glad the care and consideration was put into it. It's totally felt in the depth that we go into to learn about the people, this, the time period. Mm. Everything is there. Mm-hmm. Much like how I said our two main characters are on rails and have to act in a certain way because they're just – they need to be this character. Sure. The film can only go too far and the film needs to be a certain way. Mm-hmm. In some ways, I feel like it could have been better with the music and some other things sure. or, or ending the film, things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I even thought that maybe the editing of it or the style of shooting mm-hmm. uh, felt quite boring and quite uh, run-of-the-mill mm, uh, okay. the way it was shot. I wasn't wowed by the cinematography of it. Not a History Channel vibe like no. Napoleon. <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> I felt it to be very tame in yeah. a certain way. Yeah. And in a big movie like this, telling such a, you know, obviously made to bring such this big story to people's attention for the very first times. Mm. I didn't know about it. You didn't know about oh, exactly. it. Exactly. I was expecting more in the way that it was actually done and produced. Mm, okay. The sets, the cast, everything. I'll, 
we didn't mention Lily Gladstone too much. Phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, great. Phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal. I thought she was awesome. I can't wait to see her in more sure. stuff. Yeah. I really hope she gets more phone calls now and gets more roles. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Ray Romano did not get the phone calls after <laughs> Irishman, which I was hoping for because I loved him in Irishman. But anyway, I really hope that she's nominated. Yep. I hope that she wins for for supporting actress. Yep. Um, and if she doesn't win, I hope she's at least nominated because I thought she was Lily Gladstone was phenomenal. Absolutely. And a character very much on rails had to be a certain stoic type of way, mm. but crushed it. Mm-hmm. Like her, I'm watching her be like, she's doing such a good job right now mm. in this. So walking away from it though. Felt it was such a beautiful. It was great. It was great. And yet, coming away from the film, talking about Andrew in the car, uh, I don't know if I was talking to you about it as well. I couldn't stop. I realized I was talking so much about Marty's next film and how I can't wait for that film to come. Oh, okay. And in much way, I feel like this is a stepping stone because in my heart, I'm still waiting for a Marty movie to wow me. Mm, okay. And to go back thirty years and to reinvent himself a little bit. Interesting. For that reason, I absolutely love this film. Mm-hmm. I want people to see it and to experience it. I think yeah. it's important. This gets two shoes polished, no laces. No. <laughs> I'm and, a bit confused on where that even lands. Okay. <laughs> I think we're, we're lost with the sauce a little bit. I, I like the polish. Uh, the polish indicates what? Uh, it, it's Okay. <laughs> No, you know, so it this gets it gets two shoes and no laces. Yes. But it gets a very good two shoes. Mm. It's so shiny shoes. But, yeah. Um lace uh polish it gives it that half star. Mm, okay, so okay. so if two shoes is three stars, okay. it would be I guess three and a half stars. Uh here's a question, because uh, I actually forgot that you really liked Irishman. Uh do you think Irishman is better? Ooh. <laughs> um, I uh I I I don't want to answer that question right now. <laughs> I'm going to plead the fifth. I'm going to plead the fifth. I'll tell you what. I was really going back and forth thinking about it a lot. First thing I basically asked Andrea in the car ride home was, okay, this or Oppenheimer, which one is better? Right, right. She liked this better. Okay. And originally I went Oppenheimer. Mm. And I honestly am waffling. but Waffling now. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I mean, as... As uh, internet-y that is, it really is the arms race. Yeah. I mean, wh- which one comes out on top? And to be fair, I mean, you gave Oppenheimer an 84. You gave this an 85. So there's your answer. No, true, true. I even forgot where I put Oppenheimer. I was trying I was trying to stay away from that. Uh, Marty has been on press, yeah. uh, and he's like... It, one thing that he's been saying when going to like um, uh, film festivals and whatnot is that uh, it's all about just experiencing film. It's not which one's better, which one's better in the box office and whatnot. But um, <laughs> at the same time... Yeah, I mean, it is kind of... <laughs> I mean, yeah, it is. I, mean, I kind of like that, though. I agree yeah. with them. And to be yeah. honest, I don't know why... People were talking about this was going to be it. This was going to do it. Mm. Like, this was going to be Marty's big box office success. I saw a couple reports of that. Mm. I wasn't seeing it at all. For the big thing, That's it's three and a half hours. Yeah. Not it doesn't all, have the slots. Right. One, you have less run times. Yeah. But two, you have less people wanting to go to the film. Yeah. Sitting there for four hours, knowing sure. it's going to be on Apple TV Plus very soon. A, a fantastic point. I feel like the Apple branding to this expects a streaming element it's like uh, why, why do i have to sit through this i can pause it then if i need to right. go to, you know what i mean yeah and even though i only give this film two shoes i still really want people to go see it and yeah. see it in theaters sure absolutely uh real quick theater note too since we're already running way too oh, long oh yeah i got i got other theater uh, notes. <laughs> I, I went to an independent theater but like a great one. Oh, really the, uh, it was fantastic cool. the sound was better than what i'm used to the seats were very good wasn't dolby wasn't the, the dolby cinema <laughs> Wasn't IMAX, but a very good. You saved that for film. Taylor Swift, right? Oh, speaking of speaking of soundtrack, oh, oh, speaking boy. of soundtrack, Taylor Swift was playing right next door to us, and there's you heard like, it. Oh, oh, the last hour of the film talking about Bad Blood. You know oh, what I mean? I mean, it was God. literally like it was so loud at one oh, point. Jesus. It just was kind of quite funny. <laughs> 
Um, everyone was well behaved in my theater. Seems yeah. like the only people that needed to go to the bathroom were in my aisle, but that's fine. And then <laughs> I had this older cu- couple next to me yeah. that was it was it was so ridiculous that I, I at first I was very angry um, and there was going to be murder in our theater, but it just turned into be very funny because clueless like something was obviously going to happen on screen yeah. and then something happened to be like <gasps> oh my talking to her husband oh, oh my god. god oh my god you know jesse plemons shows up and she, she's literally very loudly talking to her husband they should be looking for the uncle god damn, why are they doing why are they wasting time with him they should be looking for the uncle and, and wow. then literally said like full commentary <laughs> two hours in the film yeah, I didn't think he was gonna be the bad guy. I mean, it was it was very cute and like so innocent, but annoying and constant, yeah, constant. Yeah. Every single time there was a death. <gasps> oh my god! There's a lot. Oh my god! That's so funny. <laughs> so, um, anyway, theater experience. How about you? Uh, theater experience was good. Uh, really, more so. Uh, I had some notes on another film that I dropped from this week. Watched oh. it full. Are we? Are we okay, wrapping yeah, up? Okay, yeah, wrapping up. <laughs> We're done with the- any other comments, Vince. We're gonna roll credits. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I I was uh, I mean I was traveling this week. I needed I needed my valuable time to watch a movie, but there was a movie that I just couldn't stomach. Two thousand fourteen's while we're young. It's Adam Driver. It's oh, no. uh, Ben Stiller. It's Noah Baumbach directing <gasps> and writing. I was like, oh yeah, this is perfect. I'll put it next to Past Lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. My God! Wow, did I hate this movie? Are you serious? What was it called? What was it called again? Uh, While we're young, uh, it's like Ben Stiller is like a wannabe hipster in Brooklyn, and Adam Driver like gaslights him into getting a movie made. It is the most nauseating script I've ever. Oh my God! I try. okay. So you're not a Noah Baumbach fan. I think so. I think because you didn't like white noise. I like exactly. white noise. Exactly. I think I think Marriage Story is the outlier for me. I think Marriage Story just it peaks and then uh, uh, that's that's my little and I will, time with Noah <laughs> Baumbach and that's it. And I will note, um, uh, Greta Gerwig was not writing this because mm, there were te- yes yes. Did she help with Marriage Story? I don't know off the top of my head. Okay, because uh, I believe she was. She helped with White Noise. Yeah. They worked yeah. on White Noise together. Right, and, and, and acting in it as well. Right, and yeah. then, of course, she wrote Bar- – he didn't help with Barbie. She did Art Barbie. I think so. Okay. I think so. Um, but, wow, uh, this While We're Young, oh, my God. It wow, was okay. like – it was it was the most uh, uh, has-been uh, – uh, wanna, wanna recapture the youth, uh, wanna be hipster, oh, my God, Brooklyn. Wow. Oh my God! And Adam Driver too. Yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> I know. And that was, I put it on. I was like, "Oh, that's great." No, I, I, I straight so up you, dropped you it. You canceled I, the yeah, film. Yeah, I canceled it. I deleted the notes. <laughs> I said, "Nope." Uh, I, I would just be shitting on it too much. Wow. It was just I, I just couldn't stomach it. Well, where's my Naomi Watts been? Uh, okay, all right. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So that's that's shocking, Vin. Actually, okay, yeah. Vin. Thank you. So, anything else or no? I rewatched uh, John Wick Four. That was pretty good. <laughs> you watch all these long movies. You got yeah, no time. No, John Wick was skipping around. Okay, I skipped right, to only right. the action scenes. <laughs> uh, people go back and listen to our John Wick episode. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, Vin. Thank you so much for stopping by here, watching all these films, even though you were traveling. You know, uh, folks. Uh-huh. I just want to say again, we're totally producer supported here. Again, you know, and if you have, if you're getting value from this or enjoying this at all, if you could just. Uh, uh, donate whatever amount that you're getting from this. Sure. So, and the donations tab. You know, Vin and I collectively were weren't even in this state 
for like 20 days this month. <laughs> yeah, but we tried very, very hard to make sure content was out to you. So we're definitely making an effort here to, mm-hmm. to constantly keep on bringing something to you. Vin's still rocking the socials and everything if you want to check us out there. Uh, just updated the website, so that's looking much more fresh because, mm. you know, just trying to keep up with it. Very, very tough month to get stuff done. So <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this month. And yeah. like I said, if you're getting any value from it, if you could go to the dailyratings.com and just and just send something our way, become a producer also. So Vin, thank you so, so much for watching all these films. This was a blast. Folks, it really was. we'll run it down one more time. We have Pineapple Express with a 66%, Past Lives with a 73%, Pain Hustlers with a 37%, Five Nights at Freddy's with a 50%, and Killers of the Flower Moon with the two shoes with some polish, and of course, a big boiler with an 85%. Folks, thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week on the Daily Ratings Podcast. <laughs> Hey, if you enjoyed the podcast, folks, if you would, could you give us a good rating or just tell a friend about us? And if you're wondering if a film is worth a watch or if you'd just like to see more movie ratings from Vince, be sure to stop by thedailyratings.com where we have our ever-expanding catalog of films. Also, like I said, if you found value in the podcast or our site, become a producer and go to the donations tab on thedailyratings.com. You can donate whatever amount of value you feel you receive from us. We're looking to build this into something large and great, folks, but we want to be completely independent from those corporate sponsors. So we greatly appreciate any support from you all. So thanks so much, and we'll see you next time on the Daily Ratings Podcast.